Welcome, ladies and gents, to Honda Racing Track to Chat podcast. We've got some great guests today, starting with the multiple British and world motocross champion, Dave Thorpe. Some great stories from a great era of motocross racing. Alongside Thorpe, we've got Roger Harvey. Now, Roger's got a massive history, a former British 125 champion. He's ridden all the world championships on various machines at all levels. He's been involved in road racing, BSB, the Isle of Man TT, got some great stories and a great character of the paddock. Also, Harv Beltram, Honda Racing's BSB and road racing team manager. Some great stories. That man's been all around the world as well, uh, working alongside Neil Tuxworth back in his days, uh, taking uh, Honda to world championships at World Superbikes. Now, welcome to all you fellas. I know we've got some great stories, so we'll have some good banter throughout this chat. So Dave, how's uh, how's life? Obviously, very different this year. I suppose you've you've not really been doing too much with obviously with the racing, but also with the uh, with the off road school. No, I mean it's it's, uh, it's been a frustration, I think, for us all. I mean, on paper, you know, we had uh, the best team certainly that I've ever had for for British motocross with Honda. We had a great pre season. Uh, testing was really good. Um, everybody was really looking forward to the start. Unfortunately, round one was a mother, and they took the decision to postpone ours on the Sunday, which was a frustration. And then, of course, COVID nineteen kicked in, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a real big frustration. Now, Harv, now you're heavily involved in, in well, now back now at uh, British Championship BSB, and of course uh, on the road racing scene, where you should have been at the Northwest 200 and the Isle of Man TT, but. You know, before those days, you were quite heavily involved, same sort of things these guys with the off-road with motocross. Yeah, very much. I mean, for me, that's where I started out, but obviously for an amateur point of view, from racing, and then actually starting work and helping a friend by the name of Dave Watson at the time, I got involved in the sport in that way and, you know, started working with him for a few years and then ended up planning and working for Honda back in 89, that was. So it's very different, albeit from my side of it, going along and remembering watching Dave and Roger racing and lots of iconic racing events that I can remember, you know, travelling all around Europe to go and watch Grand Prix and everything else. The likes of Farley Castle and Namur, some of the circuits for me were absolute pillars then and, and like Hawkstone Park and places like that, which were in the UK, so phenomenal circuits. But yeah, it's it's quite, quite surreal really. Because one minute kind of looking up to Dolby and Roger here, iconic and absolute heroes of what they were good at doing. And then you're involved in the industry. And for me, coming up through the industry, I spent quite a few years within motocross, eight, nine years in motocross before moving into road racing and world superbike and so on, and touring car and power boats back into BSB in, in 2004. So it's, you know, it's a, a long, long time. And, um, you know, you get to meet a lot of great fantastic riders and legends over the years that you sort of befriend and know. Now, Dave, you mentioned earlier, you know, with the CRFs uh, testing, pre-season testing in Spain, and, you know, uh, I, I saw online you, you'd been away testing alongside some product launch and various things, and uh, things are looking really good. Is that is that an annual pilgrimage for you out to Spain pre-season testing? Um, well, we, obviously, we did at the end of last year, um, the year before, actually, when Jake uh, had his injury, we kind of uh, had planned it and delayed it and delayed it and delayed it, hoping that Jake would be back. And uh, in the end, we didn't go. And if I'm honest, uh, 
um, it was probably one of the things that we missed in the uh, 18 stroke 19 season um, because it, it is good for the boys to ride down there. The weather's good, the tracks are amazing. Um, we learn a lot about the bikes, the riders learn a lot about the bikes and it, it's just a, a really good confidence booster to be down there with good weather. And I think psychologically, you know, when they're on their phones in the evening, they're looking at home and it's wet and miserable and they're looking out the window and it's 20 plus degrees and the tracks are prime, I think it gives them a little bit of a boost. You know, you keep yourself relatively fit now. Are you still doing any riding at all on, on either of those bikes? Um, I do most of my riding in the off-road school, if I'm honest. Um, I, I really enjoy uh, working in that, that environment. Um, I, do, I do ride the motocross bikes from time to time, but um, not, not in the same way as the boys do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Zulby. Yeah. <laughs> There used to be two laps in me, and it's down about half a lap now, at pace. Rob is just the start straight now, by the way. <laughs> well, now, that all makes sense. The last time, you know, I saw you competing was Western Beach Race. Now, for some mad reason, you had the idea, I think you and Saudi had the idea in your head to ride the Africa Twins on the, on the beach. Now, not the brightest of, uh, brightest of ideas, really, such a physical race. To be honest, you you uh, you would be really surprised that the, the Africa Twin, I mean, obviously we were doing it in a fun way, as most people do, but the Africa Twin, certainly in the beginning of the event, uh, wasn't too bad at all. The problem you have with a twin is when the ruts get deep. As soon as the ruts get deep, you haven't got the ground clearance on it that an off-road bike has got, so you've got a quarter of a ton sort of bellying out, so to speak, and that's when it gets really, really, really tricky. But the first few laps, actually, you know, the big hills and everything, you would think there's no way that would go up there. But that bike even astounded me on what it could actually do off-road. Now, I don't know whether to call you Roger or call you Sir now, Mr. Harvey. You know, obviously, uh, MXGP and your role with, with HRC. What was it like now in the modern era with factory bikes compared to your era of riding? But, to be honest... My year, Torpy, Torpy was in my year. He used to race with me. I mentioned that to a number of people over the years, you know. And uh, I taught him a lot about what he knew, you know. I, I, I had him at my training school. Um, he come there and, and I, we were at Ling at the British Championship. And uh, he came there and I just taught him that it's not easy to pass people, you know. He got a bit upset with me, but he, he, he learned the lesson. And Yeah, so he, I taught him a lot. But these bikes... His bikes in that era, in his early bikes, probably not so much his later bikes, they were the trickiest things you ever did see. Like, I wasn't working for Honda at that time. I was one with one of the rivals. But, like, they were the, oh, man. You know, when you, you, you'll all know when you see a factory bike, it's proper factory. It's got all them bits on you look at and you go, whoa, look at that. I wish I could have one of them. And Thorpe was was fortunate to be racing one of them in that golden era of the, 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 the 80s where the bikes were so tricky and they were they were different they were different from um, the production bikes in so much as they, they, they were leading development the tyres were the same size the handlebar grips were the same um, but like they were so so special and so so nice to see nowadays the production bike the CRF 450 it's like so close to what you could you know, race in a Grand Prix. And a lot of these guys, I'll just go and take one, personalise it, 
uh, put the bits on that they like, and they'll race them, you know, with, with very little engine work and this and the other. So the bikes of today are totally different from what they were back in the day, you know, when we were all on two strokes and that. Quite honestly, with good knowledge, you could take a CRF 450 of today, personalise it and win a Grand Prix on it. It is, it is possible to do, for sure. So, yeah, big difference. We've seen a lot, lot, lot of changes. Um, but the, 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 the gap now on the, on the bikes uh, from production to factory is very little. And like with HRC, what our program is, is to develop the future bikes that you'll see on the market. And they come very, very quickly after being improved on our side. So at the race meeting, you know, XGP, what actually is your role? My role now has changed. I was general manager. So like I was the first guy, European guy on the team, you know, then uh, reporting back to Japan all the time. So a couple of years back, I changed as advisor because to be honest, I got fed up with the traveling. I didn't want to <laughs> in the overseas. It's great, you know. Oh, where, where are you next week? Oh, we're in Argentina next week. Yeah, great. You know, it sounds fantastic, but you know, it, it, it's still getting up at two o'clock in the morning and driving to the airport and getting on a plane for twelve hours. You know, and uh, then you've got to get across Buenos Aires, and then you've got to get another flight for another two hours, and then you've got to drive for two hours to get to the right. Great when you're first doing it, but when you've done it for so many years. It, becomes a bit of a toll so I said I, you know, I don't want to do the overseas and not so much travelling so they asked me if I'd stay on as an advisor so whether I advise them right or wrong but <laughs> you know that's, that's my main role that, so if there's something going on anywhere in the world with motocross with uh, the way it's developing Dakar things like that that's where, where I, I come in and, and we look at um, issues and problems oh, Do you encourage I suppose it's the first question when you're negotiating with your road racing riders annually. The first thing they'll ask you is, I want a car, I want a road bike, I want a motocross bike. Do you encourage the off-road riding or do you kind of uh, not not frown upon it, but of course it's uh, far more physical than it is on a tarmac? Um, but what I try and get across them is just ride, you know, risk-averse in a sense that ride to an ability where you're comfortable you know when you're pushing over the limits and you know that potentially something is about to go wrong. Um, but, you know, Glenn and Andrew, um, they both sort of acknowledge that their riding skills and everything has improved so much on the motocross bike in the last three, four months because they've been two, three, four times a week out on the bikes training. So it's helped them for training, it's helped them from a speed perception or agility or everything the whole side of it has really helped real hard with the Irwins because we've got an Irwin brother that's quite good still gives them a run for her money but uh, it's great training for them you know Dave you know since since retiring from competition of course you've still been heavily involved in uh, uh, obviously management what how difficult is it from the competitive nature to, to look after and to oversee other riders careers without sticking, sticking your nose in a bit hard maybe and uh, being a bit too competitive and overpowering? We've been quite lucky really because yeah, I kind of surround myself with guys that, that already have a plan, you know, and uh, when, when you have riders that have a plan and they can see where they want to go and they're driven, it's actually, in terms of a management thing, it's quite easy for me. Um, I've, in years gone by, I've had people that didn't have a plan and then you, you come up against 
old and new. So if they don't have a plan, you try and help them. And my idea of a plan, actually, when it starts to unfold, generally is too much like hard work for the person that doesn't have a plan. From my time together, I find that riders that don't have a plan are always looking for an easy route. Um, and in our sport, in motocross, there is no easy route. You know, unfortunately, it is tough, the physical side of it, the training, the preparation. So by having riders that I currently have that all have a plan, they all know where they're going. If I ask them what you're doing this week, they already know. Um, if I ask them what they're doing next month, they've already got a plan. So from that aspect, um, you know, the management side of certainly what we're doing currently is very easy. Um, it, it's as with any business, and the riders are no different than any business. Any business got to have a plan. If there's no plan, plan in place to go racing, it's not going to happen. Because if you're competing against people that do have a plan and are sticking to that, then they've got an advantage over you from day one. It's, you know, I obviously listen and watch and, and look at the motocross riders or, or, or off-road, and they seem to do so much mileage, you know, uh, and of course it's tough going compared to, to tarmac racing. But, um, Rolf, how many days a week will your riders be out on a track? Um, they vary. I mean, Tommy and uh, Jake ride a bit more than Stephen. Um, they will probably be on a track three to four times a week. And funny, you know, I was having this conversation um, the other day with Graham Foster Viger, the off-road manager in the UK. You know, our big commitment to the riders is their training bikes and the backup of the training bike because those bikes in rotation get used a lot. And I mean a lot. You know, they, you know, they can do two or three hours a day. And if you look at the average motocross bike, if it rides at the weekend at a practice track, the guys are probably on them for an hour at most for the day. But our guys, they, yeah, the hours they put in on the bike uh, for training is vast. So it's a, it's a full-time commitment for them. And Jake, you know, fair play to Jake. Jake works as well. He works in the family business. Um, you know, he gets up early. He's in work at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. He'll come home and he'll do a moto or two in his lunch break. Then he'll go back to work. And then after work, he'll be out cycling. So they kind of... The plan and the commitment is is immense for those guys. Going back to your career, of course, it was busy. Was it the same kind of style? Your not just your mindset, but of course the, the mileage. No, no. Funnily enough, that's one of the biggest differences for me in in the eighties to the modern day rider. Um, first and foremost, in the eighties, you didn't have the practice facilities, i.e., the practice tracks that were readily available. I preferred to do far more physical pre-season ride twice a week, three times a week. Then once the season started, then sometimes I wouldn't even ride in the week. You know, I, I, I found the bike side of it riding quite comfortable. The only time I got intense in the season in riding during race week was if things were not going flat. So for me, the ride time was far less than it is for the current day modern rider. The physical side of it is equal, you know. The guys work very hard physically, running, cycling, swimming, the same as we did back in the 80s. You know, I read, I read various things about riders of your era, especially. Graham Noyce. Now, that really, <laughs> I can see, see Roger chuckling over the but uh, quite a character, I believe, and a kind of a different outlook in many different ways to, to, to yourself, for sure. Well, he, I mean, to be honest, yeah, Graham was so good for me in many ways. As a youngster coming through racing with Roger, I had a great nucleus of 
uh, Grand Prix riders that I learned a lot from, as Roger said earlier. But Quite Graham, actually. <laughs> but Graham, um, because he was HRC, he had an entourage of Japanese that come to the British Championship that put me, if you like, in their shop window. So when I was racing, when I started to get competitive, you know, they were there week in and week out of British Championships. And it really, it gave me the opportunity to showcase to them potentially what I could do. From my dad's side, obviously my dad had a big influence in my racing career from beginning to end. But from my dad's side, Graham was a brilliant role model because there were some things that Graham did amazing, and I mean amazing. And there were other aspects of his rock and roll lifestyle, shall we say, that, that were not so good. And my dad, you know, Graham, dad couldn't have had a better person than Graham because there was the good stuff and there was the stuff, actually, Dave, you know, you can see where that's going a bit wrong. And it allowed me to look at the good side and the side that probably wasn't going to do me any favours in the long run. I had that double-edged sword with Graham. It was brilliant. Learned a lot. Racing-wise, it was fantastic. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't realise, but Graham took me under his wing one summer, allowed me to go to Belgium with him to stay at his house. And, you know, I'd heard lots of stories about Graham, about, you know, his rock and roll lifestyle. But when we trained, boy, did he train. You know, the, the aspect of physical training was really drummed into me by Graham and his trainer because he did train very, very hard when he was racing. Roger, you know, there's plenty of characters from, from, from back in your day. You know, obviously, you, you started racing a long, long time ago and on various different bikes. I don't know too much about your racing history. I know, of course, you know, uh, 125 British champion and stuff, but did you race the bigger bikes as well, 500s? Oh, yeah, we was, yeah. In the end days, we used to race the 125, 250, and 500. And the 125 and 250 championship, that was a good little earner for us. So, you know, that was good because the likes of Thorpe and Noisy and all them, they were off Grand Prix or something. And so they they used to be real um, good events. So, yeah, I used to have like a couple of each bikes, and I used to have a mechanic. Um, I, I was. Uh, on Yams then actually I used to have a mechanic that looked after me factory bikes or me, me semi factory bikes me modified production bikes and I looked after me on practice bikes um, and I used to bring members of the spare at the weekend you know um, so like one to five British Championship and sometimes they were all together so I'd have a one to five and a two fifty and five hundreds always always on their own you know but going back to Noisy I once went past him at Orgerton I passed him in a British Championship race five times on the floor <laughs> and one of the times he was 20 metres down the hill away from his bike <laughs> and every time I thought that sorted him out <laughs> come back past the and he beat me he still beat me and that's that's the character that, that uh, DT was looking at you know that's like he jumped into the sandpit almost jumped across the sandpit didn't he Dave you know it, yeah brave boy Brave boy, and he like oh, he knew how to twist it, but he was like so one of them you wanted to watch, and you could see, you know, because obviously I was I was the old boy in that time, you know, when DT and Oisey were there, and you know you could see like Noisy side, DT was more methodic, he was very much more methodical, and and Noisy was more of just a oh, let's twist it and hang on, you know, like one of the great 
the greatest things I've seen about Noisy was um, Beanham Park and Murray Walker was commentating on TV and uh, Murray Walker was extolling the virtues of Graham Noyce, man and machine as one, and upside down he goes! <laughs> Noyce had his arse right on the backboard guard and just giving it big licks, and it was funny as hell, I often bring it up with Noyce, you know, if he listens to this he'll bloody kill himself, I'll tell you. Man and machine as one, Graham Noyce. Great, fantastic rider, fantastic rider, and great character. You know, Dave, we see so much now. You know, the tracks are so different to, to certainly back in the eighties, of course. You know, and uh, not so many natural tracks, a lot of man-made stuff. Would you say uh, the tracks now are more or less physical, especially on what the guys are riding? No, I wouldn't say they're they're less physical at all. I mean, um, the modern day Grand Prix track is is mostly man-made. You know, they they're intense. You know, they're almost like a big supercross track. It's very intense for the modern day rider. Hence, you know, you do see a lot of them throw themselves down the track quite regularly because you, you take your your eye off it for one second, and um, you know it can certainly uh, it's going to hurt. <clears throat> so the old day tracks, the bumps were you know probably the bumps that were still there from the meeting before, whereas currently tracks are all groomed and everything is really lush to start with but <clears throat> because they multi-use a lot of these tracks and the volume of people they have on them over a weekend they do get very very rough so i would say that the physical aspects are equal i don't think one's any tougher than the other for different reasons but you know a modern day motocrosser will not win unless he's in brilliant shape no different than an old school one cream always comes to the top <clears throat> yeah yeah, fair one. It's uh, it, it's how it is. You know, in motocross, there's no place to hide. <clears throat> You've either got it physically or you haven't. And uh, uh, twenty minutes just after it will always show. Always show. Whatever, whatever year you're going to look at, it will always show. You see, you know, uh, watching the guys right now, it's certainly a massive, you know, uh, uh, different style. And and Rog, obviously, at, at MXGP, you know, uh, geyser flipping neck. Some of that, some of the stuff he does over the top of them jumps. You know, he's scuffing the flipping footrests and the, and his handlebars on the floor as he goes over the top. I know it's 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 it's, it's you know the screw up. He, he's particularly good at it, but like you know, I suppose then you get like Hurlings can do just the same, but slightly different. Doesn't look quite as spectacular. Thing is with these bottom that I can't get over is the roots. Their roots are so deep and they're all around the track, you know. DT said the track is graded perfectly. It's 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 like just amazing how it's it's like a road race circuit to be honest when you get there. Um and then it cuts up but like because it's been worked on, roots appear everywhere. And the modern day guys are so, so good riding these roots and you see and they develop where they can go right the way around long, long turns without even taking the foot off the peg. But the roots are generally that deep, they have to. But like, and and uh, it's a, of the modern day rider, that, that's different to what uh, we used to face, like, because it was rough. Like, they just said it, it was rough from the last race, you know, and no preparation and probably grassed over, like... I don't think these kids know of today what a way the grass is, you know. They've never, they've never experienced that punch the front brake and bang, down you go, you know, on slippy grass. They don't know it, you know. It, it's uh, You'll know that better than anybody else, Steve, though. <laughs> yeah. 
get on the grass and just touch it. It's all blacked out, that side. They've got us across that go. So, half, you know, obviously, uh, British Championship now. But again, for you, not quite as much travelling from all, obviously all your days going off, helping, of course, HRC win win a World Championship back on the back on the, the British platform. No, it's not. You know, from sort of 2003, really been UK based, and obviously only going to Japan or, or Australia or anything else for World Superbike or Suzuka. But from sort of 87 to 2002, travelling all around the world continuously, you know, from motocross to World Superbike and everything else. I remember, you know, when I stopped travelling, I actually suffered quite a bit being in the UK over the winter because it being so dark and everything else, and not normally in the country that time of year. You know, you just take it for granted, don't you? But, you know, you're out in wherever, Australia and everything in December and November and everything else and the climate's very different so suddenly being back in the UK and being dark at half four five o'clock in night and dark in the morning till o'clock in the morning really really struggled with that but uh, yeah no the travelling side of it you know you loved it and like Roger said earlier you know yeah it's brilliant but as you get older you kind of realise that um, spending so much more time in an airport or on a plane or anything else and you get to a venue and uh, yeah it's great being there but uh, sometimes the wear and tear of that travel gets to you a bit but, uh, good to, be, to be honest Steve that's, that's one of the things that finished me in motocross was the travel really? you know, I, I think it gets to us all in the end you know certainly for Roger and for Harv you know they you know they do a lot of travelling still and it's it, it all sounds good when you tell people where you're going, what you're doing, but the reality of it is, you know, it, it, it does grind you down in the end. It definitely, definitely does. And that's as a rider or a team manager. Yeah, it's hard work. To, to, it's not hard work. No, that, that's the wrong phrase for it. But it's just like, oh, man, we've got to go. And, and all you do, you know, you think you get a bit of time. You don't get any time. You just travel to the airport, jump on a plane, go. You go from the airport to the track, so you only, you know, you, you pass through a few fields and there's that and the other, and you obviously see a road race track or you see a motocross track, whatever you're doing, and then it's pack up, off to the hotel, back. You generally get to the hotel nine, ten o'clock at night. You've got to be there at like six, six thirty in the morning, so you know your sleep's quite limited. Um, apart from that, you can rev in in the, in the mind about what's going on. Um, and then back, and then that goes on for three, four, five days, and then just travel back. You know, you, you, you don't. It is different sort of life completely, and it, it, it takes a fair bit of handling. But at the time, it's great if you could just teleport yourself there to the race. Bang, perfect. Now let me tell you, there'll be a lot of people listening to obviously what we're talking about online, and there'll be probably people out on a day like today. Uh, look out my blind! It's been chucking it down all morning. They'll be stood in the trench. Putting the footings in up to flipping, covered in flipping mud, soaked, and, and not really feeling sorry for you. Worrying about getting a little bit of sleep when I'm flat out somewhere. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Steve, it's you guys, it's the riders that turn around and say, like, oh, I'm tired, I'm knackered, I can't sleep, and jet lagged, and God knows what else. And, and That's why I said it isn't hard work, yeah. it's more, probably more tedious type work you know oh, of course yeah but it's, it's a mental time as much as anything 
Now, Raj, you, you seem to have a real good setup. You know, MXGP with with your ride quite easy going. I've been there, obviously a great level of rider, of course. Um, been been with the same team for quite some time, and seems like, uh, especially uh, guys, where he seems like a kid that. Uh, Kind of is uh, easy to get along with and, and pretty much uh, looks after himself. Yeah, he's, he's, he is a really unbelievably nice kid, you know. Um, and he does, he has a great work ethic. He just gets stuck in, you know. When, when we first took him on, uh, I'll never forget, we were going to the workshops uh, nine, ten o'clock at night. And he was stopping in his camper with his with his old man. Um, he was in the camper outside, and you could just see through the curtains. He's pushing weights in the camper, you know, at nine o'clock at night, and he'd be out running at six. Just the work, you know. And that's that's what you need, you know. You need somebody who's, who's willing to work like that. Um, he is very very easy going. He he keeps the business side away. He just wants to. Only talk about the race. He racing his bike. He didn't want to know about the business side at all, you know, which can be quite challenging at times. Um, but he's, he's he's basically um, one of the yeah one of the very very easy guys to work with, you know. But like DT will, will confirm, no doubt. You can't tell these guys anything, you know, from your experience because they know it all. They're at that level where, you know, you, you you might occasionally see a line and say, I don't know, this is this is how I do it. You might see a line and say, hey, it's worth a look at that next time, uh, you know, something like that. But you can't tell them what to do. One of the things that, back to road racing, it was Cadwell Park, up the mountain. Guys that had come up on road bikes, not been to the motocross school, um, they didn't know how to take, you know, how it come up, dip, and up onto the top. You know that one, Steve? Yeah, yeah. And you, <laughs> there's a motocross technique to get across that. And I can remember with Michael Rutter, ooh, Michael, you've got to, if you've got to shoot over her up and shoot her off, just as you tip it, and it'll, the bike will change shape. You know, I said it in his language so he could understand it. <laughs> but, uh, the guys, it was funny, like Carl Harris, bless him, you know. Um, Carl Harris, no problem at all. Mind you, <laughs> no problem at all with most things. But he he, he was amazing over that uh, that part of Cadwell. But it, it, it just, uh, you know, when you think, because I went a little bit into the road racing for a while, and, and like motocross, I'm a scrambler, you know, like dirty shoes and all that. And that's about the only thing, road racing, you could see that, Maybe that would be an advantage to them, you know, if they just used a little bit of motocross technique there. Um, but, like, yeah, Michael, I can remember telling him and talking to him about it, but he could not get that. He came over the top and went back, 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 and going like hell on the back work. Bless him, good on him, yeah. Was that, how, how tough was that, Roger, when you obviously stepped over to, to road racing, uh, away from, your, obviously, your own uh, natural sport? Yeah. How uh, was that? 97. 97 I joined Honda and uh, the brief was 98, look after motocross and, and any off-road stuff they were doing and then attend all the road races and then take over the road racing the year after. But it, 
things changed about a bit for various reasons. And then by joined in November, by February, I was British Superbike Manager. Oh, great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I know a lot about this, don't I? Uh, it's managing people and this, that and the other, you know, and, and like, try to be sensible with it. But, like, yeah, so that's... But the thing was then, it was just a, such a widespread because you were on Sanyo. Um, you and... Was it Mara? Was Mara on the... Oh, Brown and Wolves. Yeah, yeah. there's a few, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and I've got to look after that team. And you've got to run the one team. And you know, I was also involved in the commercial side. So there was a lot going on, a lot of plates spinning, you know. And, and like, of course, 25, 250, uh, 500s, the two, uh, twin cylinder 500s were there. Then we went VTRs, we had um, RC45s and, you know, all these bikes that had uh, got to be kept and traced and, you know, out with teams, and, and as you know, we had a lot of teams in that era. Best one, best one TT-wise was um, when we had all the dignitaries over from uh, Japan. You know, in the old post office workshops. Yeah, yeah. I had to allocate out these workshops to um, each team, each supported rider. We had the big one. And also, going back, Joey. I had to allocate him one because he's 125 and 250s, you know, he got to look after himself. And uh, Joey was in there and he got the old blue boiler suit on <laughs> and the half cut glasses, you know, them glasses he used to wear. And he'd be fettling there on the 250s and 125s. And I, I thought, oh, I've got to get these Japanese gaffers in here. You know. I walked him into this uh, workshop and Joey's there working away on his 125, I think he was. And then, like, there were cylinders and, and bikes, you know, he got a load. I said to these Japanese, I said, uh, oh, welcome, yeah, this workshop, blah, 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 and this one here. And this guy in a blue boiler suit with his glasses, like, covered, <laughs> covered in oil. I said, and, uh, by the way, I'd like to introduce Mr. Joey Dunlop to you. <laughs> and I just stood back up. You should see the faces that it was. Oh, man. And Joey, like, yeah, he, Joey was Joey. He got on with what he got to do, mate. And that's, uh, you know, it was, he used to sit with him in that workshop. Everybody had gone home and they used to sit with him. And we had a cup of tea. We used to have a cup of tea and just talk. And then he'd go off and he'd do a lap in his van. Yeah. He'd do a lap almost every night in his van, even then. One that many knew that much, still going to do a lap. Now, there you mentioned, you know, kind of uh, getting burnt out a little bit with the uh, world championship through all the travel and stuff. And but, but now, you know, you're, you're, you're a big guy, uh, obviously running running quite a big team at uh, British Motocross at all the nationals, as well as the off road centre and a great ambassador for the uh, for Honda and of course the CRX, but. You can't leave you a lot of time for anything else. I'm lucky in this building because, uh, uh, you know, the boys, they everybody's got their job. You know, everybody knows what they're doing. You don't have to oversee anybody for anything. So this building, with the help of Honda UK, Harl, Brown Foster Viger, the race team kind of runs like clockwork most of the time. Um, the off-road school up front, as you know, and I, I love every minute of it. Um, and I've got good people that work with me there. And the adventure is run by Pat, Pat Jackson. Um, I'm lucky enough to go and ride there sometimes when I've got free time, which I really enjoy. But they're all three businesses that are all well run by different people. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I one thing I've learned as you get older is you've always got to make time for what you want to do because if you don't make that time, then your work side of it actually suffers because you kind of start to resent a little bit that actually I've got no time for myself. So, you know, like for instance today, weather permitting, I'm going to go cycling. It's, it's at some point, whether it be 12, 1, 5, I'm going to go cycling. But you just make that time as an individual. And I think it's something that you learn to do as you get older. You, you learn to um, put everything in a box and allocate a certain period of a day or a week to yourself. Otherwise, uh, you do and you go stir crazy. <laughs> Oh, same for you, really, you know, especially for 2020. I know it's all changed with, with of course, uh, COVID-19, but, you know, you kind of uh, back at BSB as usual, but taken over looking after the Isle of Man TT and the road racing again, which kind of is a massive workload. It is, and, you know, obviously this year has been tough as well because, again, with all the travelling, everything we've done over the years, to suddenly find yourself um, office-bound, they're basically here from March till now. That's never happened to me in 30 years of being with Honda. Actually being in, in the workshop or the office or without going to any event or anything. And such a shame with the TT and the Northwest being cancelled. Tough, you know. I think it's, um, as you know, over the years, the last 10 years, I've been there with the Mugen side of things, with TT Zero Project. So I've been very much hands-on. It's still with the TT for, for the last sort of 10, 15 years. But... Um, nothing sets you up for really for the road racing side of it with having a newcomer and a young up-and-coming rider that you know, had there in the sense of being the fastest newcomer and things like that. Got a real young team to work on over the next two to three years. It's like Dave and Roger said, you know, that there's a work ethics in it. You can see with the riders that are planning and working hard, they've got a target and a focus of where they want to be. And, you know, if you've got the right people in place, um, it does make it a lot easier for you manage looking after them. So, is, that, is that kind of your, 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 your work plan, of course? You know, you just mentioned, obviously, we've got uh, young David Todd, who's going great, you know, and uh, has got a good pace already, but he's up and coming, of course, and one, probably one of the brightest prospects, I think, uh, for, the, for the TT in the future. And, of course, Glenn Irwin uh, was, was planning on going there for the first time. But on top of that, course a new uh, CBR, a new a new thousand uh, CC fireblade uh, to develop random TT course. Yeah, it's, it's you know big challenge, massive challenge for this year, you know, to suddenly take a new bike to the TT. Um, you know, we were quite lucky that we had some tests and everything out uh, in Qatar with the journalist launch and then we went down to Spain to road bike test and it was just a bit of familiarity to the actual road bike. Um, was so encouraging because both Andrew and Glenn, you know, got off that but off the fireblade and you know were sort of wow, that as a road bike, phenomenal. So it really sort of lit up tunnel, if you like, thinking, well, we've got this now, we've got a plan, we've got testing, we've got all this to work through. Um, I was going over to the island, um, not every time, but I've been over there sort of three times with Glenn, whilst Glenn's been going out there learning training, looking for somewhere him to live and work to again, just to lead back to what Dave was saying you know, help them create a plan to work to try and reach their goal, because if they haven't got all things in place, 
you know what it's like up there, Steve. You know, you, you're on that island for two, three weeks. You need everything in place. It's just you need to sort of kind of move home and it's all got to work for you. It isn't all laid out in there. It's bloody hard work. And, you know, the guys are trying to learn learn the circuit, familiarise yourself with bikes, changing from a super bike to a super stock bike. Um, you know, so there's a, a lot of work, a lot of work to do. Um, but uh, as you say, you know, Davey, definitely you know, up-and-coming talent. And I think Glenn as well, once he gets uh, gets his first lap round the island official, um, I think he's... He's got some worth ethics, which are really calming and nice to see him develop that side of it to the road. Yeah, he seems to have a great mindset. You know, obviously, it's quite different for the for the Ironman TT to any other road races. With it, with it being, of course, a time trial and, and a race against the clock as such. You know, and I think I was criticised a little bit when I first went or before going um, because I was kind of I suppose classed as a little bit of a ruthless. Uh, loose cannon. Um, however, I just changed everything. I changed my complete outlook, uh, uh, and I had some great guys behind me. In all fairness, uh, when I when I first went to kind of keep me calm and uh, keep uh, making sure I, I was walking before before you know before running. Yeah, I think that's the key thing, Steve. As you just said, there, you know, you you've total different mentality to short circuit racing. And, uh, you know, yes, it's pushy, you're going to go as you can, but um, you've got to have got to have that calm and influence and everything else and around you. And, and I think that's where what surprised me really with Glenn with what he's been doing out there and the knowledge and everything else that he's learned and knowing where he is around the track and, and knowing corner by corner and what's coming up, what's coming up, what's coming up, not just not only what he's going through, but what's next, what's next, what's next. Um, yeah, it's quite impressive. And Dave, you know, back in your back in in your day, when you, when you were going to these uh, more natural style circuits, you know, all, all around or well, all around the world, of course. Um, how much effort did you put into walking the tracks before riding them and going looking? Even if you've been to those circuits before, um, I always walked the tracks when I got there. Always, I think uh, back in the old days, everybody used to do that. Um, but uh, to be honest, I never. I never really used to dwell on it. I mean, we didn't have the, the benefits of uh, the phone, the phones that we've got now. Um, all we had was the uh, the videos that we could play back from the previous year. Um, but I never, I never really dwelled on the, the venue. Um, my biggest uh, thing was if we were going to race in Holland, I tried to go there a couple of weeks before and, and really put the work in in the sand. Um, because as everybody knows, it's um, you know Holland and Belgium are tough for the for any other European rider, unless you're Dutch or Belgium. It's it's a, it's a tough race. So um, for me to be competitive, I always used to go a few weeks before for those races. But everything else, you know, when we went to Italy or Spain, where the ground was hard, it was kind of it was my my bag, if you like. So I was always quite confident to look forward to the to the race. I didn't really analyse it so much before. There's some great footage, you know, on YouTube and various different places. Some of your, some of your old races, and of course, you had probably two main Belgians that seem to be pretty fast everywhere, not just in the sand. Yeah, they were, they were. I mean, there was there was a nucleus of riders that were, were all of us were pretty good at most things. 
um, on our day, you know, we could we could run with one another at our best. Um, uh, but really, you know, with Rog now, it, it's no different than uh, Tim and uh, Jeffrey and Tony Caroli. You know, that there's a group of people that they can do everything. You know, they're very good in the sand. They're good on the hard stuff. They're good in the mud. Um, you know, it's uh, you always get that nucleus of, of top rider that, that can do everything in any generation. There's always somebody that actually can do everything. I think, Roger, I think, you know, the biggest thing you see these days is obviously uh, there, there are no factors. Well, I mean, there are, um, but there's not such a, a big gap between uh, factory bikes and production bikes. So there's a, uh, you know, there's a real strong depth of field. Yeah, the, the, like I was saying earlier, you know, your bikes, you, you can make a production bike capable of winning a Grand Prix with the, with the right talent on it. Um, but there is a lot, a lot of good young guys. And the way that MXGP has been developed, whether it's good or whether it's bad, you know, they, they kick the kids out of the MX2 class very early, put them into the MXGP class. They, they, but they now they have to move up. The kids have to move up. So that that's what's resulted now in in the kids in the Grand Prix today. Um, that there's a lot of lot of fast lads, and they make big steps over a winter. That's that's the main, uh, most amazing thing, you know. Um, the steps that the, the the lads make over the course of a winter. Back, Rog, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about obviously riding different uh, size bikes. Uh, obviously, uh, the the big the big races and. Uh, how, how, you know, I was watching some races yesterday and then flipping big old 500s that were just barking everywhere, a real strong, throaty, flipping sound. And, you know, for me to ride a 500 is like trying to flip and flipping commit suicide. <laughs> um, but what was the difference, really, in, in jumping from a smaller capacity to the 500? Um, they, they, them 500s, they, they really haven't got good control of them. You know, they're the, the manufacturers haven't. They just let you have something that just ripped and, and like didn't grip. The suspension wasn't brilliant, um, and and they were just so powerful. But they were like almost the power of the four fifties today. They, you know, they were on a par with with today's four fifty. Uh, but today's four fifty puts it all on the ground, whereas them used to spend half of it spinning. You know, so to get on the five hundred was quite a handful. Especially if you, they had a race at Mallory Park called the, um, I think it was the 875. You set off on 125s, onto 250s, onto the, the 500, two strokes. And like the 125, you push it around flat out, and then literally throw it away. Like like my instructions to get off my 125 was give it a big fistful on the tarmac and to slide out your way and you could just launch straight onto the 250. <laughs> Get on the two fifty in the first lap or two, you go, ah, frightening. Um, and then when you get on the big bike, it was it was even more so, you know, because then things just took off with you everywhere. Um, but yeah, the whole thing of control and electronics and all this that the other is is coming. It's made it easier, but like um, still the, the the modern day bike compared. I still think I like to see the old five hundred two strokes ripping about. They were good, you know, like that, that what Thorby rode. They were magic things, you know. They were beautiful bikes. It's like the old kickstart used to fold into the fuel tank, you know. You just, you just, you love that sort of stuff, I know. And just you see how it's all moulded in, and it just sits in there. And ah, let's have a bit more of them. But uh, I think the days are long gone. 
Well, it's just like you said earlier, back then, Honda were so far advanced with thing areas, you know. Like you said, the fuel tank, they were working at the low centre of gravity fuel tank, looking at the different gearboxes, different crank weights, rotor weights, ignition, fueling, everything. Yeah, so It yeah. was phenomenal where they were going with certain areas of... Uh, yeah, they, they use the development across yeah. all aspects, isn't it? You know, like, like you know, we've seen the Africa print that, that's come now, you know, yeah. and that's because of what they've been doing in Dakar, fed into that, and, yeah, and yeah. it's, um, it's it, they've been doing it for a lot of years, haven't they, when you, when you look back. That's but then, them, them bikes were special. Yeah, and like now we say, like, with the DC, you know, dual cuts transmission, they evolved from motocross, from the... the Motocross bike, which they started out in 91, 92, or whatever it was. Yeah. And they were automatic. Yes, they so when they drove automatic. That evolved, you know, from there. So it's yeah. so much going. But some of those bikes back then, um, like I remember quite a few North photos, Dave and Bores and Mallard's bikes that were pretty special. Yeah. Machines. For, for, for us that like the technical side, that, that you know, that engineering bit to go and look at them. We're, we're uh, in fact our our factory bikes of today. The, the the mechanics in the paddock at a MXGP event, the first event in the year, the, they go round and they have a look at each other's bike, you know. And invariably, they have an unofficial vote after. And invariably, our bikes come out the best looking, the best, you know. Um, they like them. A lot, a lot of other other guys. They won't tell you who they work for or anything, but they, they put the tick in the box. Dave, in your in, in your era, were the bikes changing? Yeah, with being factory, obviously on the CR five hundred, were they were they changing every meeting? Was the development that strong? Um, they they had a rotational thing, so we had uh, I think it was three or four chassis on rotation. So if we did a Grand Prix, the chassis would be resprayed and then come back in the line. So we had a rotation system going. But it's quite interesting. When I first signed for Honda, I signed for Honda um, on the basis of the five hundred air cooled bike, which Graham won the world championship on in seventy nine. Um, so that was the bike that I thought I was going to ride. Um, at no time when I signed the contract did Honda suggest that there was any other bike than that. And in fact, that was the bike that they had for me to ride in the winter. Um, and then they invited me to America to go testing. Um, so we went to America and they, I remember they drove us out to the desert and I, I remember thinking it's got to be cl tracks closer to LA than out here because we, we drove for hours and I mean hours and then this um, this uh, box van arrived and uh, out come these bikes and I remember saying to my dad what are they? and uh, they were the first water cool bikes that I'd seen from Honda factory from HRC um, and it was a whole new learning curve for me at that time to, to try and um, learn to just get used to it because then they also threw in disc brakes at that point um, and Roger will tell you when the disc brakes first started um, you know they were either on or off there was no feeling um, and we, we quickly learned as well with brake pads the original brake pads in the old days they had to be run in you couldn't put a new set of brake pads in because otherwise there nothing happened in the first corner. You just kept going, and there was all sorts of things in ninety, uh, sorry, eighty three, that 
were a big learning curve for me with HRC because it, it kind of almost like wasn't what I bought into because I thought I was riding a bike like Graham's. And fortunately for me, um, I had a two-year contract because 83 didn't really go to plan. Um, I didn't make the progress that I'd hoped and I know that Honda had hoped. And I think um, actually if I'd have had a one-year deal, I'd have probably been shown the door at the end of 83. But contractually, they were stuck with me. And um, then in 84, we never looked back all of a sudden um, from being um, part of a team um, in the beginning that I felt comfortable in to going into in 83 a team at Honda that was massive and, and as a rider there is a big part of that you know being everyone looks and wants to be part of HRC but actually when you're in it you've got to have broad enough shoulders to cope with everything that goes with it and the 83 year was definitely a learning year for me and the 84 you know it, it kind of all started to come good and I started to, to really feel part of what Honda were trying to do. But in your era, for me looking back, especially on the five hundreds, they I mean you're a big you're a big lad, a big strapping fella. But everybody seems to be the same kind of size, whereas in the modern modern kind of racing world, there's a lot of small, little nimble. Do you think that was an advantage back then being a big guy, especially on those big five hundreds? Not really. Um, I mean the way I rode, as Roger said before, I was always quite methodical. I kind of um, I always had a, a plan and I kind of stuck to it. Um, whereas if you look at my teammate Eric Blessing when he was uh, here with us he you know he was what five foot two he'd tell you he was five four but he wasn't he was five two uh, he, he, you know he was a, a little lad and you know he was like a little mighty mouse I mean he could handle that bike as well as anybody the only time I really felt and what, it was a big psychological boost for me the only time I felt that my size went as advantage over Eric was when it rained you know, I can remember um, being in San Marino, being woken up in the middle of the night before the race with a big thunderstorm. And psychologically, I was thinking, what a result. And I, could, I knew that Eric, that was two rooms along, would be awake thinking, oh, my God, because he, his short stature in the mud was a disadvantage. That was the only time it really showed. Uh, whereas general conditions, yeah, big or small. And Raj, obviously, World Championship. You know, um, still a little bit unknown, of course. There is light at the end of the tunnel, but, you know, again, uh, it's going to be quite a bit shorter than what a normal season is. Yeah, probably. We'll be lucky to get away in August, to be honest. Um, but they're, they're on about running it into December. Um, that's what they've said. And they've said they want to get 20 races in. They're not going to do that. It's going to be 10 or 12 races. They're going to change the format. Normally, the format is qualifying um, and everything on the Saturday and free practice and racing on the Sunday. Two, two races, two MXGP, two MX2. But they have a EMX class, a European class or ladies class in there. They have that in there as well. Um, but that now will go to Saturday. So they reduce everything down. So that's one day less we'll have to be there. So... I think the trucks get there on a Wednesday night, set up Thursday, you know, with big tents and this, that and the other, because we have to build our own structures. Um, and then get everything ready, bikes prepared, controlled on the Friday, and then we're ready away to go on Saturday. So this this will reduce that time down. And what they're saying, because we're going back to back to back to back, 
Um, it'll reduce time down for, for, for riders, for a crew that are working there, you know, because they've got to travel there, they've got to work all the time. It's, it's going to be real graft time for them. A lot of the riders have took the opportunity to have, have different parts of the body sorted out. Um, yeah, it's shoulders, it's been a good job. Um, seems to be coming back strong and everything, you know, but that was just one get off, and I suppose COVID felt nice for him, you know, but um, there again, you come up against the complications. He's based in Italy, he couldn't go. Uh, he couldn't stay in Italy, he couldn't get the operation, so back to Australia, get the operation there. Um, and yeah, from our um, physio and doctors on the work with the team, uh, they say very good job, um, recovery's coming good, so hopefully he'll come back, you know, on point. I think that, that's the thing for all three of us, isn't it, with uh, the series, how they're going to end up. It's um, They're going to be intense and as... I've said earlier, you know, any of our riders get a little niggle or a little problem, you know, more often than not, you've got a week or maybe two weeks if you're lucky to sort of recover and repair. But the way it's going to roll out now, you know, we're going to have a series that's going to run pretty much back to back and um, injuries, which are all part and parcel of modern day racing, they're going to be such a critical aspect of, of the end of the season. Um, and, you know, whilst that it felt, felt good for him with COVID-19 falling in to get himself repaired. Grand Prix motocross is so intense, you know, that you do see the guys throw themselves down the track. Um, but they're not going to have the week in between to repair. And uh, I think that will be a critical part of all of our end of series. So. Right, guys. Thanks very much. I think we'll call that a day. Very much. Thanks very much for joining me today, of course, and uh, giving people an insight into the past and present. The very best of luck when you finally do get going, and hopefully we'll see you flying the Honda flag. So, Thorpe, I got you in there. I got it in again, didn't I? You, you did, right, yeah. Me. <laughs> yeah, you did, yeah. The bit, the bit, you, you're talking about Ling, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You never mentioned. You never mentioned about the other one, though. No, Beano. No, funny, funny that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear the story now? Go on. Before we go, when I, for three weeks, two weeks, me and Thorpe did race together. Like he was coming through, and for them two weeks in my life. I managed to race with him. And we were at Ling British Championship, one of the first ones in the year, on the 500. And Thorpe come up behind me, and he was revving, shouting, screaming at me to get out of the way. And I could hear him every corner. And I just thought, bollocks to you, boy. You want to pass me, you'll come round me. And then kept it on the inside, just gradually drifted out a bit. You know how it is. And the... Anyway, he passed me, and then I think a, a rock knocked his fuel pipe off, and I, maybe he didn't finish that race. Anyway, he come humping across the paddock at me, and he says, well, well, I said, well, well Thorpey, just, just, just hang on a second. said, if you're lapping me, shout. If you're not lapping me, don't bother shouting because you're wasting your breath. <laughs> he ain't in the mood, right? So we go off, Thorpey goes off Grand Prix, and blah, 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 blah. Then at the end of the year, Beenham Park, one two five British Championship. Math, potentially, is going to win it. Pete Matthew, my teammate. But I can get second, so give you a horrible beating Jonathan Wright on the Kawasaki. So, we get to the event, 
and you never know what's going on until you get to the event. He'll be there. What's he doing on a 125? Alec, bless him, Alec Wright, you all know him, he drafted Thorpe in with the sole uh, purpose, keep half behind. So let me get at Jonathan. <laughs> Colin Ace Wright, he was signalling, keep half back. Got back into the pit, Thorpey walks over and says, Rog, if you're lapping me, shout. Whoa. And that is the true story, is it not, DT? No, it's very true. Yeah, it did make me trouble. I love it. I love it. I use that one many a time. 